Amen. Let's thank him for that faithfulness right now. Father, we are so grateful, we really are, for how faithful you are, how much you love us and care for us, how much you provide for us every single day. And even when we get rebellious or even when we get apathetical or when we get distant from you, you're still there. And you're always just as close as the mention of your name. We are so blessed that you are our God. Thank you, God, for loving us. Thank you for sending Jesus Christ into this world that we might become your children through our faith in him. And we pray right now that you'll be with this service and everything that is done. May you receive all the glory and all the honor. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen and amen. Well, we uh, welcome you all here again today, and if you're a guest here at the bridge and came in after we had our official welcome, we want to welcome you once again. You're in our traditional service, and we want to be God's bridge to you today, a span across the gap of where you are right now to where God has created you to be. A lot of exciting things at the bridge, and we're so excited that you're here with us today. It's a special week this week, again. We have always uh, have special things, but today I want to give a shout out. I want to give a happy birthday shout out to one of our most unique members here at the bridge, and that is Mrs. Gareen Anglin, who on Thursday will turn 104 years old. Let's give her a, she's in the back there, and, and we love you, Gareen, we love you. Happy birthday. Let's sing it to her right now. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Green. Happy birthday to you. Now, I know you say, well, my birthday, well, you get 104, we'll sing happy birthday in the service to you too, all right? So let me know when that day arrives, and we'll honor you also. We're so excited about that. And, and again, happy birthday, and may God bless you. May we be singing happy birthday at 105 next year. Well, today we're going to continue a series that we began two weeks ago called Life After Life. And if you're a guest, we're doing this series not just to be sensational. As a matter of fact, not to be sensational at all. We're doing this for the purpose of educating ourselves as the Bridge Church so that we can be a bridge to other people who are asking questions about this eternally significant question, is there really life after life? And we've noted that in our culture today, this is a very popular theme. Lots of books are, are being written about it, and, uh, like, like Proof of Heaven and Evidence of an Afterlife and Life After Life, and there's movies being produced about it. And so we are trying to educate ourselves from a biblical position so that we can speak intelligently on this subject. Now, so far in week one, we took on the question, is there really such a thing as life after life? And we didn't look at it just from a biblical standpoint. Of course, we looked at that aspect too. But we looked at it from a scientific and a medical standpoint. And if you miss that message, it'll be available. It's on our website, or you can get a copy of a CD at our resource table, or the whole series will be available at the end of the series. But we gave evidence that we can certainly have faith that there is something after this life. This life doesn't end our existence. Last week, we talked about how do near-death experiences that people report who've, who've clinically died but were resuscitated later and they come back telling these stories about what happened to them in that period of time, how do those near-death experiences relate to Scripture? Do they line up with Scripture? And last week, we saw that many of the reported NDE phenomena 
really do kind of line up with Scripture. Things like an out-of-body experience. Well, we looked at 2 Corinthians where the Apostle Paul himself talks about possibility of him having an out-of-body of experience. Talk about uh, encountering a mystical light. And we see where Scripture describes God as light, sometimes in a metaphor, but other times Scripture just says God is light. And we know that, that in the Old Testament, God often presented himself in what the Jewish people called the Shekinah glory of God, this brilliant light source. Then we looked at the fact that any unimaginable world, well, Scripture says that I have not seen nor ears heard nor entered in the heart, imagination of the heart what God is preparing for those who, who are, love him. And so we know where we're going is going to be an unimaginable world. And we talked about all our sense of time and space. And Peter said, you know, for the Lord with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. In other words, in heaven, there'll be no linear time like we celebrate it and we, we use it here as a life function. Life review, we know there's going to be judgment and intense feelings of love and peace. And we know that God is love and that God offers peace. So these near-death experiences, these phenomena, do not contradict Scripture. We end it last week, though, with this thought. And it's a nagging concern that I still have as we think about all this and process all this. And that's this. Why does everyone seem to make it? Why does everyone seem to make it to heaven? It was interesting. After the service, a couple moms came to me, and one even with her teenage daughter, and said, you know, my daughter, at the end of the message, before you said that, said to me, well, how come everyone seems to make it? A couple moms said that. A lot of you are asking that same question. Well, that's what we're going to take on today. In Dr. Long's book, Evidence of the Afterlife, he says near-death experiences almost never describe feeling negatively judged by the spiritual being who may be their guide, no matter how unkind they were up to that point in their lives. In other words, there doesn't seem to be any negative judgment. Now, I know some of you have mentioned to me, and I have looked also at the phenomena of those who have had near-death experience that come back with quite a different experience, and a very hellish experience. But those are very infrequent. The others are far more frequent. In fact, some books have been made on that also, but one of the books in, in, in looking into that was, was actually debunked because the author of the book, who unfortunately was a pastor who was maybe a little bit more overzealous, started reporting all these things. And when some of these other NDE researchers said, hey, we want to talk to your people because this is new, this is different, kind of had to retract and say, well, I never really spoke to the person. I heard about it and this and that. And so although those are, are, are there... There's really not enough research, there's not enough evidence to really talk about those yet. But we certainly know as believers that, that there's going to be two different experiences. So how can this be? How can it be that everyone seems to make it to heaven? How is that possible? Well, let's take that question on. Now, not a lot of people write about this. In fact, I found nothing written about it. And so what I'm going to share with you now are my own personal conclusions. So therefore, as I often say, the views today you'll hear are the views of Pastor Pete, not necessarily represent the theology of the bridge or the governing board of bridge, the board of elders. These are my conclusions, okay? Sometimes I call it tokarology. But let's see if scripture kind of lines up with some of my thoughts. Well, as I'm processing, just like you, as I was looking at all this stuff and I'm reading all these things, I'm going, why in the world does it seem that everybody makes it to heaven? And I start wrestling with that question. And so I, I tried to formulate some, some plausible responses. My first one was, well, maybe the universal salvation folks are right after all. Maybe they're correct after all. Universal salvation is a theology 
that proposes and suggests that everyone is saved. Everyone is going to make it to heaven. Doesn't matter what religion you follow, doesn't matter what kind of life you live. They believe that Christ's sacrifice on the cross was so all encompassing that it was made in behalf of all humankind, wherever they live, however they live, and that God's love is going to conquer all of our inadequacies and all of our sinfulness. Now, those who would espouse this kind of theology, Use scripture to back it up. I mean, they, they don't just create this out of, out of the blue. One of, uh, such passage is Paul's letter to the Romans. Paul, remember, is one of the most dramatic converts to Christianity in the first century, initially a persecutor of Christians, later became one of, one of the greatest, most prolific writers of scripture, two-thirds of what we call our New Testament he's written. And in this particular letter, he says this, Consequently, chapter 5, verse 18, consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man that many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. In other words, what he's saying here, he's talking about Adam and Jesus. He's talking just like in Adam, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, sin was unleashed on all humankind. And so everyone became sinners. It was automatic. It just happened as a result of that one trespass. So Paul is saying, so that because of the one act of obedience, Jesus being willing to go to the cross, therefore that act was just like the act that brought condemnation. That act brought righteousness to everybody. But we've got to look at the passage in its entirety. See, oftentimes what, what different movements will do is they'll take a passage of Scripture and they'll contextualize it. In other words, they'll take one, one particular part of that and make a whole doctrine or theology about it. You've got to take Scripture into account with all Scripture. So if we back up in this passage, just a couple of verses, Romans chapter 5, verse 16, it says, and it leads the same kind of thought, though. It says, again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. So you say, well, it seems to be saying the same thing. Yeah, but look what it says now in verse 17. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will, now read it with me, those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now, the key in that passage, see, is often overlooked. It says, those who receive God's abundant grace. Now, if I already possess something, I don't need to receive it. And so if salvation has already been, been, been given to every human being, then there's nothing we need to receive. We already have it. But yet in the same passage that universal salvationists will say means that, that everyone's going to make it, it says, well, those who receive this. Now the question becomes, how do we receive that? Do we automatically receive it because Jesus died on the cross? Well, Scripture doesn't seem to support that. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, a verse that we quote a lot here at the bridge, it says, for it is by grace you have been saved. Yeah, God has, has, has given his grace to mankind. He has given us a way to eternal life. It says, but it's through faith. That, that's how we get it. It's through putting our faith, and putting our faith in what? Not what, but who? Jesus Christ. 
And he goes on to say that it's not from yourself. It's the gift of God. It's not by work so that anyone can boast. It's nothing we can work for. It's just something we receive through faith. That's what it says in John 1.12. It says, yet to all who received him, speaking of Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. In other words, then they enter into a state of forgiveness. Then they enter in a state of eternal promise. Romans, again, that same letter we looked at earlier in chapter 10, verse nine, or 8 and 9 says, but what does it say? It says the word is near you. In other words, it's accessible to everybody. That they get that right. It is accessible to everyone. There is no one who is excluded from this offer of the gift of eternal life. It says, it, it's, fact, it says it's in your mouth. It's in your heart. It's like right on the tip of your tongue. It's right here in, in your heart. It says that if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord. In other words, that Jesus is the only way. As he himself espoused when he said in, in, in uh, John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He says, if you believe that and confess that with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so the, a preponderance of Scripture declares that not everyone is saved. And therefore, not everyone is going to make it. So I had to rule out that universal salvation explanation to why everyone seems to make it. Because again, in these NDEs, that's exactly what seems to happen. So I crossed that one off my list. I said, Scripture does not support that at all. Scripture says that we have to receive, through faith in Jesus Christ, the offer of eternal forgiveness. It's not automatic. So, what else then? Well, I thought, well, maybe NDEs really are counterfeit acts of Satan. Maybe these come from Satan. We saw in 2 Thessalonians 2.9, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs and wonders. We, we've talked about that during the series, and we've been on guard about that. That maybe, maybe all this is, are, are these, these wonderful acts, these, these unamazing, seemingly miraculous signs that will take place at the end of time, and they will be the work of Satan. Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 13 and 14, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And what does Jesus say? Only a few find it. So we're talking about the opposite of what universal salvation says, where they said everyone makes it. Jesus, in fact, taught personally that wide, broad is the gate that leads to destruction. In other words, there's many ways and many philosophies and many religious uh, exercises that people follow that, that lead to destruction. The psalmist said there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. And in fact, Jesus says, narrow is the gate that leads to eternal life. And only a few find it. In, in relation, in proportion to all the human beings who will ever exist, Jesus said, you know, sadly, only a few are going to find it. And if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, right now in your heart, you ought to thank God that you are one, that God allowed to find it. So with that teaching in mind, Maybe Satan is trying to broaden that gate. Maybe he's trying to enlarge that gate 
in order to give a sense of false eternal security to, to people. Where people say, hey, I'm gonna make, everyone makes it. Everyone makes it. So maybe that is what's going on with these NDEs. Maybe it's Satan who is producing this in order to, to defy and to counter what Jesus taught about broad is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is that gate. And very few find that gate that leads to eternal life. After all, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 13 says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen masquerading as the apostles of Christ, those who say everyone's going to make it. This is no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as what? An angel of light. So all this light stuff. Maybe that's Satan. Maybe it's not God at all. So maybe NDEs are counterfeit acts of Satan. Could that be? Could be. I'm not so sure about that. I'm not so sure about that. Personally. And say, okay, okay, why? Well, let me show you why. In the Old Testament, when we get to the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is an Old Testament Jewish prophet who God gives uh, prophecy to. In one part of Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 28, God reveals to Ezekiel the creation of the most spectacular of all his angelic creations not named here, but his name was Lucifer. We know him now as Satan. And, and, and of his creation, God reveals this to Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 28, beginning in the second part of verse 12, speaking to, now this is God speaking through Ezekiel like the conversation he would be having with Satan. He says, you were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. In other words, I made you absolutely beautiful. He said, you were in the garden of God, the garden of Eden. That's how we know he's not talking to the king of Tyre who he's ranting about right before this passage transitions to this, this particular point. He says, every precious stone adored you. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. Now, what does it say? On the day you were what? Created. He says, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub. In other words, I elevated you to the highest position of the angelic ranks. And what's it say there? For so I what? Ordained you. In other words, God's saying this. God is saying, I created you. I made you. I ordained that you would have this power and this majesty and this beauty. Now, since Satan was created by God, he's not equal to God. He is the creation. He is not the creator. He is not omnipotent like God. He's not all-powerful like God. He's not omniscient like God. He's not all-knowing like God. He cannot be omnipresent. He is a fixed being. He is not like God where God's spirit indwells everywhere and everyone who has trusted Christ as a Savior. He's not like God. So although he is a really powerful, powerful being, and although that, that he will be able to do signs and wonders that, that will confuse people, and although he tries to masquerade himself as an angel of light, can he really duplicate? Can he really do the indescribable wonders of the imaginable world 
that people who go through these NDEs claim to come back and have experienced. I'm not so sure that he can do that. But we can't discount this one. But i got another reason why I'm not so confident of this one, but I'll share that with you in a minute. So, all right, if it's, if it's not universal salvation, and maybe, maybe not acts of, counterfeit acts of Satan, but maybe not, then what else could it be? Well, I thought, okay, maybe the NDEs are an act of God's final mercy. Maybe they're an act of God. Maybe they are sent from God. Maybe God is using these NDE phenomenon to provide one last warning to mankind that really there is something. There is something after this life, that this life doesn't end it. Because in not just the American culture, but in cultures around the world, increasingly people are discounting this idea of life after life. They're buying into a more agnostic or atheistic philosophy where life is life and you live life. When you're, when you're, when you're finished this life, you are D-O-N-E, done. You're just gone. You're extinct. You don't exist anymore. Jeffrey Long, again, in his book, Evidence of the Afterlife, he says, the core NDA experience is the same all over the world. Whether it's a near-death experience of a Hindu in India, a Muslim in Egypt, or a Christian in the United States, the same core elements are present in all. Again, that's, that's a question we're asking. How can that be? Well, when I was processing this, a passage of Scripture came to my mind that Jesus himself declared. In Matthew 24, verse 14, Jesus said, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. In other words, Jesus says this. Understand this about this gospel, this plan of salvation, this gift that I offer from my sacrifice on the cross. He said this message, God is going to enable this message to go into all the world, to all nations, before he closes the door by sending Jesus Christ back. It's going to ensure so that no one could ever say with absolute authority, I never had a chance. I never had an opportunity to hear. In fact, God will provide opportunity. In, in the very last days, the scripture even says there'll be an angel that will circle the earth proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. So maybe God is using these ND phenomena to convince people around the world to wake up, to not buy into this atheistic or agnostic kind of philosophy that, that this is it and you don't have to worry about anything else. Now, if this is an act of mercy by God, kind of a final warning before that end does come, it would make perfect sense. And since his, his predisposition has always been to redeem people and not to judge them, as, as recorded in 2 Peter 3, 9, where he says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting what? Anyone to perish. Understand that about God. God is the opposite of what we've created him to be in so many philosophies and cultures and even religions, that God is this angry, eternal force that just wants to condemn man and punish man. It is the exact opposite. God is the exact opposite of that stereotype. God, in fact, is love. And his predisposition and his passion has always been that every single human being makes it to the glories of heaven with him. That's why he hasn't sent Jesus back yet, because when Jesus comes back, that closes the door. 
So it would make sense, if this is what God's using these for, that he would use both believers and non-believers alike to have these experiences. Why? Because if it's just Christians, believers, who are having these experiences and going, oh, God, let me see. God gave me a snapshot in the life after life. What would, how would the world react, the unbelieving world? They would go, there goes those Christians again, those fanatics again. Now they're having visions. Now they're seeing heaven. Now they're out of their bodies. Well, they've always been out of their minds. So why should we be surprised they're out of their bodies now? See, it would make perfect sense that if God were using them in that way, that he would allow people of faith and people who are not of faith or people of different faiths to have that same experience to say, wake up, wake up. The end is coming, and when it comes, there is judgment. There is something after this life. Maybe the NDEs, in the last days that I truly believe we're living, are kind of a final act of God's mercy to all mankind. Another consideration came to my mind, because we can't... conclude conclusively that that's what it is. But if it was, it's not out of the character, the biblical character of God. He's God of love and peace and forgiveness. But what else could it be? Well, it may be NDEs are an interruption along the road to final judgment. Maybe that's what they are. So what do you mean by that? Well, Dr. Raymond Moody, again, who kicked all this off with his book, Life After Life, in 1975, this coined the, whole, the phrase near-death experience. We've been talking about his book and him the last couple of weeks. In, in his interviews, he, he says this, in an interview I saw. In an interview, asked him the question, so what happens when we die? Dr. Moody, you've done all this study, and you've talked to all these people who've had these uh, near-death experiences. What happens when we die? He said, people I've talked to about leaving their bodies and going through a passageway and into a light and seeing their deceased relatives greet them and seeing a life review of their lives, everything we've talked about. But then look look what he says. He says, but the question is, what comes after that? See, that's a profound insight. That's a profound question. He says, I know these people, that they come back and they talk to me about out-of-body experience and entering a mystical light and and entering an unimaginable world. And some even say they they meet some of their deceased relatives. And I didn't even cover that one because we didn't have time. But but, but he says, but what happens after that? Because remember this. The vast majority of these near-death experiences in human time, in our time, in our linear time, our sequential time, happen within a matter of minutes. A couple minutes as a medical team is trying to, to resuscitate a person who's had a massive heart attack or, or is, is, is uh, flatlined on, on the surgery table in a surgery room or at an accident scene or whatever. I mean, they're, they're happening in minutes. Even Evan Alexanders, who, who was in, in a, a deep coma as a result of that E. coli bacterial meningitis that destroyed his brain or was attacking his brain, doesn't know how long all this experience happened during that seven days of coma. What happens after that? In other words, what Dr. Moody is suggesting, and what I'm suggesting to you, is those don't complete the death process. That's why they're called, what? Near-death experiences. But what happens 
after that, that person comes back. And maybe what we're looking at is an interruption of the path they would have taken had they remained dead and were not successfully resuscitated. Now, with that thought in mind, I started thinking about Scripture again. In a couple different passages, I'm going to use this one in Matthew or Luke chapter 13, beginning verse 22. Jesus, again, is himself talking. It says, Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Are only a few people? And he kind of goes almost back into this narrative about the gate and all that. But he said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and not be able to do so. Once the owner, and he's talking about God now, of the house, heaven, gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Now, then you will say, but we ate and drank with you, and you taught in the streets. And, but he will reply, I don't know you and where you came from. Away from me, all you evildoers. Now, now watch what he says next. Verse 28, Luke 13. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but read it with me. But you yourself, you yourself what? You yourself what? My mind got to thinking. Could it be that Jesus is suggesting that he's implying here that those ultimately thrown out of the kingdom were originally in the kingdom? Is that why it says, and you'll see Abraham, and you'll see Jacob, and you'll see Isaac. They're still in the kingdom, but you have been what? Thrown out. Now, remember, Revelation says in 20, when it talks about final judgment, Revelation 20, verse 11, says, Then I saw a great white throne in him who was seated on it. And then what? If we look at the context of that, it's saying then, at the very end of time, just before God is ready to destroy the, the current earth and heavens and create a new heaven and earth that will be the, the eternal abode of, of the righteous, See, a lot of stuff happens. Jesus returns, the, the tribulation period, the millennial kingdom, all that happens. And it says, then at the very end, I saw a great white throne, him who was seated on it. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. It says, then, after that, Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, the holding place. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So my mind thought, is Jesus in that passage and other passages implying that those ultimately thrown out of the kingdom were ultimately 
at least for some time, some exposure in the kingdom. I could think of nothing that would cause more weeping and gnashing of teeth than have been to ex- been exposed to an unimaginable world of heaven only to be cast out. Now, immediately, the question came to my mind, it would come into your mind right now, could a loving God really be that cruel, that insensitive? Could, could is there any way? Now, that question comes from our human understanding of justice. And, and we would conclude, as many theologians do, and many churches profess, and that's why so many churches are turning towards universal salvation more and more and more. Everyone's going to make it. Don't worry about it. See, because we look at, at the horror of what Scripture says about what being cast out means. Not only cast away from, but what, what that experience will be. We think, there's no way a loving God could ever do something like and it just doesn't compute in our human sense of justice, in our human sense of morality, in our, our human sense of love. Now, what's the, I don't have the answer. That's one of those age-old questions that, that we'll, we'll know. But, but I think Scripture does give us some guidance in it. Paul, again, this great New Testament writer, in his letter to the Philippians, in chapter 2, verse 9 and 11, says this. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Now look what he says. In heaven and on earth and what? Under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, read it with me, to the glory of God the Father. Ultimately, one day, what Paul's saying here, and again, this has been revealed to him by God to the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit to Paul, Paul to you and me. One day, every knee is going to bow and acknowledge that Jesus was exactly who he said he was. And he says, things in heaven, all heaven is going to say, Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except to him. On earth, everyone alive at that time is going to say, Jesus is the way. Jesus is it all. And they say, the glorious coming and, and all that. And it says, and those under the, under the earth is a place in the literature of antiquity that describes hell, that describes Sheol, Hades, that describes the abode of the eternally dying. And so some way, somehow, and I know it doesn't make sense to me, it doesn't, and I wrestle with it just like you wrestle with it, but what Scripture indicates and suggests to us that when it's all said and done, no one's going to challenge God. In fact, everyone will say, God, you're right, Jesus, you did give us Jesus, and it will all be done what? To the glory of God. God, the Father, in the end, as hard as it is for us to process and understand, in the end, it's all going to make sense. In the end, no one will challenge God and say, you weren't fair. You didn't give me a chance. It's not right. No one, not in heaven, 
Not on earth, not under the earth. No one will challenge God because when we finally experience God and everything that he is and the wisdom that, that we don't even begin to understand, no one's going to challenge it. And that's why we will be able as believers to go into eternity and ultimately God will wipe every tear away from our eyes and there'll be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death for those things are all gone now. All right, I know you're asking, all right, so... Where are we going to land this plane, Pastor Pete? What are we doing with all this? Where are we going to land this thing? First of all, I think it's all fascinating. Do you? Do you agree that it's really fascinating to, to deal even to struggle with it a little bit? It's all fascinating. Where I'm at right now, and I will tell you my position could change as I continue to consider and study this. But where I'm at of this place in time, right now, I lean towards believing that NDEs are a window into life after life. That's where I am right now. Now, what purpose that God is doing that for, I'm not 100% sure. Right now, I tend to lean towards, it's one of God's acts of final mercy, of trying to get that gospel, trying to get people to wake up and understand that something's coming. And I think it's a window provided by God, by the way, and not by Satan. A big reason I'm inclined to think this way is because the kind of life change that results from NDEs. What happens? Remember I told you there's another reason? There's another reason why, why I don't think it's Satan? So what happens? What's the other reason? Now, I'm debating right now if I have time to tell you. I'm prepared to tell you. Maybe we should just cut it off right here. We do have 10 more minutes. You want to go on? All right. Life changes, these people come back report. Include things like a greater appreciation of life, stronger sense of spirituality, reduced interest in material gains and status, a belief in the sacredness of life, a sense of God's presence. All these things kind of come back. In fact, people who suicide, they, even though seeing all that and experiencing all that, they, they very rarely ever try to suicide again because they come back with a, a new appreciation of the sacredness of life. But here's the one that really stands out to me, an awareness of meaning and purpose in life. They come back with a heightened awareness of meaning. What is life about? What is the purpose of living in the first place? And what is that meaning? What is that purpose that they come back with? I can describe it in one word. And that word is love. Love. Love is one of the most common words NDAs use to describe their experience. Dr. Alexander, Eben Alexander, remember in his Proof of Heaven, his experience, his NDE, he comes back with this conclusion. Mind you, remember before he left, he's a materialist. He believes that the brain creates consciousness. And he, he's into all these explanations of what these NDEs are. And now he believes that they are from God. And he says this, love is without a doubt the basis of everything. This is the reality of realities. The incomprehensibly glorious truth of truth that lives and breathes at the core of everything that exists or that ever will exist. He says, and no remotely accurate understanding of who and what we are can be achieved by anyone who does not know it and embody it in all of their actions. Love and compassion are, for, are far more 
than the abstractions many of us believe them to be. They are real. They are concrete, and they make up the very fabric of the spiritual realm. And anything that does not have these qualities appears immediately and obviously out of place there. In other words, what he's saying, what he's experienced, what he comes back in the conclusion of the purpose of meaning life is he says, he says, listen, it's all about love. And that place is such a place of love. And God is such a God of love that anyone who hasn't embraced, anyone who doesn't understand that life is about love, when they get there, feels immediately out of place. Reminded me of Jesus' remark in Mark 12, verse 30. When they came to Jesus and they said, what's the greatest commandment of all the commandments? And he says, Mark 12, verse 30, love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And he offered this one even without a mask. And he says, let me give you number two. This is the second greatest. And he says what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what does he say? Read it with me. There is no commandment greater than these. Now, maybe Jesus was thinking beyond this realm. Maybe Jesus was trying to not teach just, just, well, here's what you should practice every day. Be a nice person. love Maybe Jesus said, listen, this is the purpose of life. There's nothing greater. You can't miss this. All the other laws, all the other commandments, all the other prophecies were designed to bring you to the place to understand that the hallmark of life is love. Loving God and loving others. Jesus even went beyond that later on in Matthew 5, verse 43. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your father in where? And he says, this love, get it, it's this love, get it. It even goes beyond those who you like and those who treat you nice and those who are your family members and your close friends. It goes beyond. He says, you even need to love your enemies because that is the sign that you get it. That is the sign that you really are living as a son, living as a daughter of the eternal king. Dr. Moody again says, NDE people from all over the world have told me that whatever they had been chasing, and my experience as a psychologist is that almost everyone is chasing something. Some people are chasing power, which is so ridiculous. I myself have been chasing knowledge. Some people chase fame or money or any of these other things. And then he says, but whatever they were chasing up to this near-death experience, they come back and they say the same thing from all over the world They say what this life is all about is learning to love. When they saw a review of their life, the most important things from this review had to do with the love they had shown other people. What does 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter, say at the very end, the last verse, verse 13? And now these three things remain. Faith, that's important. Hope, that's really important. But what does he say? The greatest of these is what? Love. Remember we asked, maybe NDAs are acts, counterfeit acts of Satan? Well, the second reason I don't think so is because Satan's message has never been a message of love. Satan's message that people would come back with would be, live life any way you want because we're all going to make it anyhow. It doesn't matter how you live. It doesn't matter what religion you follow. That would be Satan's message, not a message of Love God. Love each other. Even love your enemies because love is the purpose and the meaning 
of life. That's what I believe Jesus was saying. He said the most, the most purposeful, purposeful thing I can do, the most purposeful thing you can do, the, the way that we can live life to the max and really be ready for eternity is after trusting Jesus Christ as our Savior, then number two, living a life that is predominantly characterized by love. Right now, I think they're a window in the life after life. However, I got to tell you, I don't need life after life. I don't need evidence of an afterlife. I don't need proof of heaven. You know why? I got this book. I got this book. And although I don't have all the answers, this book gives me enough. And as the old hymnist said, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. This is enough to get me. This is enough to get you. This is enough to get us all to the perfect place to enter heaven. I believe there is life after life. And because of that book, I know how to get there. My question is, I want to know, what are we going to do when we get there? What are we going to do? See you next week. See you next week. Father, you are great. We don't understand all this. But Lord, your scripture doesn't leave us without guidance, doesn't leave us without consideration. And we thank you that that's so true. God, I just pray right now that we might settle in our hearts that yes, there is life after life. And that possibly these NDEs, we, we can't conclusively understand what they are and what involvement you have in them, but we, we gotta believe that whatever it is, it's, it's a manifestation of your love to us and all humankind. So God, help us to, to, at least from what we've gleaned so far, receive this central message that both your word, Jesus our Savior himself, you, you shared it with us, that, that if we want to put our noses to the grind at doing anything, it's to be more loving, more accepting, more compassionate, more forgiving, because that's the air that we breathe in heaven. Use us for your glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.